Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello everyone and welcome to the LSE, to the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity keynote lecture titled Solidarity Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter. My name is Armina Ishkanian and I'm the Executive Director of the AFSI, Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program at the International Inequalities Institute and a professor in the Department of Social Policy here at LSE. I'm incredibly pleased to introduce our keynote speaker, Professor Manuel Pastor, and our discussant, Tio Malefe, to both our online audience and to everyone joining us in person. Professor Manuel Pastor is a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, where he also directs the Equity Research Institute. His recent books include Solidarity Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter, South Central Dreams, Finding Home and Building Community in South Los Angeles, and State of Resistance, what California's dizzying descent and remarkable resurgence means for America's future. Tio Malefe is an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity and a writer and editor with an affinity for transformative social research. His research takes a decolonial approach to cooperatives and similar communally owned and controlled organizational forms in South Africa with a Global South outlook. Please note that we have British Sign Language interpreters at today's event who you can see on the screen. For any Twitter slash X users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Solidarity Economics, all one word. This event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. We always say that. <laughs> as usual, there will be an opportunity for you to put your questions to our speakers. For our online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A function at the top left of your screen. Please include your name and affiliation. And for those attending in person, I will let you know when we will open the floor for questions. Please raise your hand and wait for the stewards with the roving microphone to come to you. I will try to ensure a range of questions from both our in-person and online audiences. Um, so Professor Pastor is going to speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll have 10 minutes of discussion and um, contribution from Tio, and then I will open the floor for a Q&A. So now I'm incredibly delighted to hand over to Professor Pastor. Over to you. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Pleased to be with you. Uh, glad I can walk around. Uh, so uh, there's been several times it's been said. 45 minutes, make sure it's 45 minutes, don't talk longer than 45 minutes, because they know what academics do, right? uh, which is we pretend we're Fidel Castro, and we just keep going and going and going. So I'm going to jump into the presentation uh, pretty quickly, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the origins of the book, 
some of what's in the book, and then perhaps some of the implications. I always like to let audiences know before I start talking, that if, while I'm talking, my voice uh, gets soft or tired out, you might think it's because of the long flight from Los Angeles to London. Uh, it's not that. I actually have a voice condition that's called spasmodic dysphonia, spasms around the voice box, which can cause your voice to break um, and uh, sound tired out. Uh, and this is the truth. Uh, it gets treated uh, so my voice works once a month with Botox, <laughs> which is how we treat everything in Los Angeles. So, totally works for us. Um, so, I want to talk a little bit about the origins of this project. So, the origins of the project are not so much from an academic discussion, uh, and it's interesting. So, basically, there's a couple of things that set this book into motion. The first was the apparent collapse of neoliberalism without anybody recognizing it. How you can have a market-oriented philosophy after the financial crash of 2008-2009, when we saw the catastrophic failure of markets that are supposed to be perfect to anticipate that crisis. And we saw the destruction that was wrought across the planet. For people to still believe in the neoliberal perspective was something that was at least perplexing to me. And then in 2016, in the United States, we saw the election of Donald Trump, which made two things very clear, uh, aside from the fact that he should never have been elected. The first was that the politics of division, which is what Trump appealed to, is really driven by an economics of scarcity. That is, while some uh, are concerned about how they're doing economically, they're willing to vote for a populist. And that has to do both with real scarcity and a perception of scarcity, which is really what neoliberal economics is all about, is creating a perception of scarcity in a world which actually has quite a bit of abundance. It's just in very concentrated hands. The second thing that I think became, if you could turn the volume up a little bit, that'd be great. The second thing that I think became apparent with the election of Trump in the United States is that states matter. That is, that you could win an election, which Trump did, without actually winning the popular vote. All you had to do was win in the right states. And so we began to think a lot about that, and I wrote a book called State of Resistance about California's organizing and how it helped to transform the politics of that state. And in 2018, there was a gubernatorial campaign in the state of California. And what we decided, my co-author and I, is that we wanted to help California move from being a state of resistance to being a state of renewal. And so what would it take to do that? Partly an economic program that could deliver more abundance to many. And we created a set of conversations with movement actors in the state of California to say, what do you think should be in an economic program that we could put into the electoral campaign for the governor for it to be debated? <laughs> and one of the things that was interesting to us 
was that what you, what you might have expected, that what organizers would do, would say, well, we need this housing program, or we need this climate program, or we need this de-incarceration program, or we need this program around immigrant rights, that the single thing they kept coming back to was that too often progressives sounded like they had a laundry list for justice rather than a coherent perspective. And that what they really wanted was a new economic narrative. And that new economic narrative is what this book has been all about. Now, all of that got driven home even further by the COVID crisis. Because COVID was the disease that revealed our illnesses as a society. It revealed inequality in terms of access to healthcare, particularly in the United States. It revealed the fragility of people who lack legal status in the country. It revealed the racist nature of the United States in terms of the death rates and illness rates that developed. At the same time that COVID was the disease that revealed our illness, it was also a disease that revealed and a crisis that revealed our mutuality. People realized that they needed to put masks on, not just to protect themselves, but to protect others. Realized that if we protected the most vulnerable, we'd protect the whole society, recognized our mutuality. At the same time, the crisis brought out our divisiveness. People who fought against mask mandates, people who denied the science of COVID just as they would deny the science of climate change. And in the midst of all of that going on, we saw in the United States, with ripple effects across the world, the murder of George Floyd. And the murder of George Floyd lifted up all sorts of issues around policing. But the point that I want to drive home is that what people began to realize I think in the United States, in the UK, and around the world, is that racist policing is just the tip of a racist iceberg. Of inequality in terms of access to education, access to good jobs, and even access to the environment, to clean air, to uh, mitigated climate risks, um, etc. And so, in the midst of that crisis, we began to realize that there was really, I mean, I don't know what, whether it happened here, but there was a lot of discussion about how we recover. But why would you want to recover to a normal that didn't work? That left so many vulnerable. And in that context, we need instead to think about reimagination, restructuring, and renewal. And it is in the year of 2000, uh, during the midst of the COVID crisis, that my colleague and I wrote this book, uh, braving uh, a lot of COVID to get together and work on it. Uh, and I think that that reinvention involves three different things. I'm going to talk about all three tonight uh, quickly with the book sandwiched in the middle. First, uh, it involves thinking about racial equity and anti-racism as being fundamental. Second, it involves crafting a new economic story 
that can become common sense. That's what those advocates were asking for, not a bunch of new policies, but a story that could bring people together around an alternative economic vision, and third, a commitment to social movements for change. Now, why the first of those? Why is it so important? Interesting story about this book. Uh, because this book, which I'll talk about in a minute, actually got instigated, inspired, by activists and movement people. We had a sounding board of them be the first readers in the book. And they gave us a bunch of interesting reactions, which I'll talk about later. But at the same time we handed the draft to these activists, we sent it to the publisher here in the UK. And they sent us back a note, which was really interesting. They said, this book is good. But why, in a book about economics, are you guys talking about racism so much? And I think what they thought we would do is to dilute the message. Instead, we said, okay, we're probably not getting through. We should double down on talking about how fundamental racism is, has been to the neoliberal project, and why it is such a corrosive influence on being able to recognize commonality. So part of the work we need to do is to interrogate anti-black racism in particular, anti-indigenous racism, how it sets the terrain for othering xenophobia, hate, and the tolerance for structural inequality, as long as that structural inequality is unequal in terms of who it affects. This is particularly important in the United States because in the US, what's going on is that our demographic change is gliding us to a moment, probably in the year 2045, in which the United States will become a majority people of color nation. It is a thought that fills some of us with delight. All I can think of being in Los Angeles, which became majority people of color in 1988, is that the rest of the United States will know the joy of a Korean taco truck. <laughs> that is when our cultures mishmash together. But obviously what brings some joy brings others terror. A fear of America slipping away on them, a fear of demographic change. And that's what's fed the Trump phenomena, which at its core is not about class, but about race. It's about protecting racial privilege for those who have been at the bottom of the economic uh, ladder in the white community. Now, interestingly, that demographic change in the United States, despite all the hullabaloo, is not being driven by immigration. There was actually a pretty big burst of immigration into the country between 1990 and about 2008. But since then, immigration flows into the country have pretty much stabilized. The share of foreign-born has increased slightly. What's going on is a fear, not of migrants at the border, but of their children. So what this shows you is the change in the youth population between 2000 and 2021 in the United States. The number of young whites in the United States actually fell by about 9 million. Now, 
I always like to reassure our audience is not familiar with demography. That does not mean that nine million young white people died. We would have noticed that. There would have been a retraction in demand for avocado toast and that sort of thing. Uh, what it means is that there's more young whites moving into 19 and 20 than moving into zero and one. Where has the growth been? Been a slight decline in the number of black Americans. Some of that's young black people marking themselves as multiracial now. But the big increase has been Latino kids, Asian kids. What people are fearful is not immigrants, but their children. <coughs> and their children's claim on society. And you can see that change geographically here. This shows you the United States in 1980. One thing to notice is that California actually had no county except for the county adjoining Mexico that was majority people of color at that time. But as you move from 1980 to 1990, you could see in 19, back in 1980, the places that were majority people of color were the Black Belt of the South going to DC, the borderlands of Texas with Mexico, Native American lands of the Dakotas, Native American and Hispanic areas of New Mexico. As we move to 1990, you can, and then 2000, you can see a lot of change, but where is it mostly occurring? California. California was America fast forward, which is why I wrote that book, State of Resistance. This is 2010. This is the most recent census. But as we move to 2060, watch what happens. Demographic change everywhere, including places that you might not expect. Salt Lake City. I know you're thinking, Salt Lake, that's not just white, that's super white. It's shiny Book of Mormon white, right? Uh, but it's actually a place that's had a lot of migration flows from Latin America and from Africa. Kids are being born there. It's changing. So there's a lot of reaction because what used to be a phenomena mostly confined to California is now going on across the rest of the country. And there are racial realities about this. Big differences in median household income. What this shows you is median household income by race and ethnicity in the United States. Most recent data. What you can notice here, if you can see it, for households that are white-led, householder is white, uh, median household income about 74,000, Asian household actually even higher, uh, black household income way lower, 45,000, Latino household income a little bit higher, but also lower. What I'm going to show you right now is the same graph, same axis, same groups, but focusing on households that are raising children under the age of five. Watch what happens to those differences. They increase substantially. What was about a 1.5 ratio of white to black household income becomes about a two to one uh, ratio of white to black household income and similar to that white to Latino household income. What that means is that racial inequality is being baked in. And it's being baked in in another way when you look at the 
wealth gap. And what this shows you is median net worth by race for whites, for black Americans, for Latino Americans. What you can see is median white household income was on its way up. Financial crash goes way down, feeds into the economic anxiety that fed into the Trump phenomenon. It's on its way back up. But if you look at black and Latino household income, uh, household wealth, much lower. One last graph. Well, maybe not the completely last graph. Because, as you can tell, I love graphs. <laughs> if you don't love graphs, I'm not really bonding with you right now. <laughs> but I'll be telling stories in a minute, and those of you who are more qualitative will feel more secure. So, <laughs> looping back, when people see those differences in household income, they think, well, that's probably just a function of education. If we fix the education system, which is full of unequal opportunities, we would fix the income differentials. What this shows you is median wages by education level for the working age population by race, less than high school, high school, some college, an A degree, which is a community college degree, it's a kind of credentialing professional sort of degree, and then having a BA or better. What you could see here is something your parents probably told you. So you get a college education, your income goes up. What your parents probably didn't tell you is that at each and every level of education, there's still a big racial wealth gap until you get to the BA or better in which Asians are actually doing slightly better than whites. So it's not just education. There's a wage penalty because there's persistent discrimination in labor markets, because some of that is network effects, who you know helps you get a job, and so we've got work to do. It's a reason to lift up the issues of race. Um, and it's also important to realize how steeped the neoliberal project was, which became popular with Reagan and with Margaret Thatcher in the UK, was in racial dynamics. It is no surprise to me that one of the key speeches Ronald Reagan gave in his 1980 campaign was a speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, a place made famous for the slaying of three civil rights activists by the Ku Klux Klan, in which Ronald Reagan gave a speech about states' rights code word for white supremacy, and in which his promise was, as we talk about here, neoliberal theory may have stressed the liberating power of markets to raise all boats. Neoliberal theorists said that markets would compete away racism. After two or three or four hundred years of evidence, you might shift your views just a little bit, but be that as it may. Uh, including the ability of the market to compete away discrimination. But its political triumph in America was drenched in a racist vision that the state needed to shrink to protect 
the privileges of those who already had access. That social security would be protected, but spending on education for the young would not, as the young were becoming of a different you. And at least within the United States, the first place that public choice theorists and neoliberal theory got used was around the extension of charter schools, which were used in the South as a way to resist integration of the public school system. So I wrote uh, a, a book, or an article, that talked about the fragility of neoliberalism, or neoliberal economists, thinking that they're innocent of a racist outlook when the kind of growth of neoliberalism was drenched in this. So how do we offer up a different alternative? That's what my colleague Chris Benner and I worked on with this book, Solidarity Economics. It's a really good book. <laughs> Apparently you can buy it outside at the end. The publisher probably doesn't want me to say this, but it is available as a download for free from our website, solidarityeconomics.org, in an act of solidarity with our readers. And as I'll point out in a minute, partly because of its origins, on the website you can also find a comic book version of the book that's available in English and in Spanish that has been used in popular education. <clears throat> so why did we write the book? I don't quote Milton Friedman too much. <laughs> but one of the things Friedman said was pretty unpopular for a very long time. Uh, and then I've worked since to try to make him less popular. But only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible, the monetarism of Milton Friedman, the embrace of a neoliberal market, becomes the politically inevitable, gets picked up by Thatcher, by Reagan, and by corporate America seeking to shrink the state. <clears throat> so, crises help to produce changes in paradigms. And one of the things we talk about in the book is that paradigms change through a combination of three things. Facts, feelings, and force. Now the facts part is what we academics usually do. We produce great data, we produce great regressions, we do fantastic research showing that the raising the minimum wage doesn't in fact reduce employment. And we think, gosh, those facts are really going to change the world. I hate to say this to an academic audience, that's not so. And to think about that, one of my favorite examples is how many of you have taken economics? Okay. In an economics course, for one of the first things we teach you is demand and supply. In order to illustrate it, we then show you that raising the minimum wage 
will shrink employment, a proposition for which there's virtually no evidence, but which we keep teaching over and over again. So facts don't always change the game. What helps is feelings. Understanding the emotional world, the common sense that's wired in people's brains. So the campaigns to raise the minimum wage in the United States really did not gain traction until people began talking about a living wage. Because what it meant was to be on the other side of that debate, you had to be for a dying wage. And that was a rhetorical shift that was incredibly important. It was something that reached into people's feelings. And then it had to be coupled with force. And force of two types. Force, organizing for change, unions, community activists, and the force of new institutions being formed, like the Institute for New Economic Thinking, uh, labor centers in the United States offering alternative economic visions, other networks. This is important because this is also what the right did to land neoliberalism such a prominent place in our universities. Good research with some facts, a compelling story about individual rights and the perfection of the market, and the force of the politics of coupling up with the Republican Party, and then the force of institutional change, creating an American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, and so many others, the Federalist Society that laid an institutional foundation. So, that's what we've been trying to do with this book. Now, <clears throat> if you've ever written a book, and I hope that many of you get the chance to, one of the most exciting things is when the book arrives in your office. You open it up. I mean, they actually have kind of a new book smell if they've just been printed. It's like a new car smell, but it's better because you created it. You can admire the cover. We were particularly enthralled with our cover. I guess it's not there, but you'll see it. We were, it's a beautiful cover. Because it's got people being mutual. And it's got a movement picture on the bottom. And we fought for that movement picture because we said we need somebody who's differently able, disabled, on the cover. And so what they initially gave us was a picture of uh, someone in a wheelchair being pushed around. And we said, well, that's not what we were thinking about. So if you look at the cover, it's a march for disabled rights being led by somebody in a chair, an active agent. So very proud. The book arrives, you're very proud. And then immediately you're frustrated because you realize you could have set the entire 300 pages in three sentences. <laughs> so what I can do is save you a little bit of time and focus on the three sentences. The first sentence, and I hope this creates change for all of you, is we need to stop talking about 
the economy and always talk about our economy. When you say the economy, it makes it sound like a set of rules given out there by God or the market that we can't possibly change. When you say our economy, you realize that it's a set of rules that we make. How we protect property, how we protect uh, those without property, how we reward profit, how we reward mutuality. And that that set of rules actually changes our behavior. One of the quotes we use in the book is from the Cherokee Nation, which says, if we, had t if we have two wolves inside of us, one self-interested and one that cares for others, then the wolf we feed is the one that thrives. And what we've done in markets is reward selfishness and encourage it to be. And create then a conception of human nature that's about self-interested individuals. When you know in your heart of hearts that we don't just act out of self-interest, we act out of concern for others, we act out of a sense of moral principles, we act out of a sense of solidarity. There was a very famous article in the leading journal of economics <coughs> called, Why Do People Tip? And only economists could think about that question. Because when you think of like an economist, there's not a good reason to tip, particularly if it's a place that you're never going again. Right? Uh, like you could say, I want to tip because I want to reward good behavior later when I come back. But if you go to a restaurant, if I'm in London, uh, go to a restaurant, I'm never going to come back again, why should I tip? Um, because it's the right thing to do. Because it puts yourself in the situation of someone whose wages might be too low. Because it's an act of solidarity with, and respect for their work. Because it's a social norm about how you behave. And a theory that can't understand that is maybe a theory that doesn't understand why people care. Why they act out of mutuality. And that theory can't grasp our second big point in the book, which is that mutuality drives our economy more than you think. And mutuality, fairness, and inclusion can actually generate prosperity for the many. So I'm about to go into some statistics. Before I go into the statistics, an anecdote. Because that'll help those of you who don't like statistics. Again, I don't understand you, <laughs> but I'm trying to help you. I am lucky enough at he was seat to have an endowed chair. And it, uh, they literally give you a wooden chair, which is really cool. They also give you a bunch of money because the guy who endowed it was really rich. And so I asked him, 
Jerry Trepangian, Armenian guy. I said, Jerry, how'd you make all this money? How'd you become so wealthy? And he said, well, I treated my customers right, I treated my workers right, I treated my suppliers right, and it worked out. And you know in your heart of hearts that's the way good businesses are sustainable over the long run. And you know that if having no labor standards, no environmental standards, and the freest markets possible would create wealth, Haiti would be the richest country on the planet. And it's not. But you can put statistics to that too. Some of you know <coughs> about study done by the well-known Marxist organization, the International Monetary Fund, <laughs> which looked at what drives sustained growth over time. And what they found, Berg and Austrian, is that the factor that creates the most probability of a country falling off sustained growth, off a growth spell, is the initial level of inequality. Because when it's very unequal, you tend not to invest in public education, you tend to run away to your private system, you tend to get a lot of political conflict, which is not so good for stability or even for protecting property rights, and so growth is not sustainable. So my colleague Chris Bitter and I, in a previous book, Equity, Growth, and Community, decided if it's good enough for the IMF, it's good enough for us. So we did exactly the same study, looking at what drove sustained growth in 200 metropolitan regions in the United States. In those regions that were the most unequal, the most racially segregated, the most politically fragmented, tended to not be able to sustain growth over time. Why is this important? There is a tendency, even amongst progressives, to think about equity as a sort of special interest issue or a question of just fairness, inclusion, and morality. But you can't sustain economic growth over the long haul when you're actively over-incarcerating, when you're actively disenfranchising immigrants who could contribute to your economy or start businesses when you're actively under-investing in the education of the next generation because they are a different you than you. Inequality is bad for prosperity. But in order to combat it, in order to lift up the power of mutuality, we need social movements. Because this shows you, in the US, what's been happening to the share of income going to the top 1% since neoliberal policy came in vogue. You'll notice a pretty steady pattern. And there are people who are actively invested in the old story. So 
One of the things that we need to do is to understand that there are people who benefit from the current state of affairs. So social movements are necessary to generate change, to lift up difficult issues, to push for community empowerment, and just as power important, just as markets, the theory is that markets sort of reflect our selfishness, but actually markets make us more selfish because they reward self-interest. Just as markets make us selfish, movements make us mutual. If you've ever participated in a social movement, you've had to learn to stand in solidarity with other people. You've had, learned, you've had to learn how to bridge to groups that are not like you. You've learned how to create uh, habits of intersectionality, of recognizing different groups, what they might have in common, and also what they have that's different. So what happens if we adopt a solidarity economics frame? First, uh, we would see more acutely the importance of the care economy. This is a graph from California, and what it shows you, the bottom blue, is the growth of high-technology jobs in the high-tech capital of the United States. <coughs> yes, they've been growing. What is this? These are jobs in nursing, elder care, family care, home care, home health services. That's where the growth is in our economy. Now, why is that? A couple things to think about. First, behind every software engineer is an army of nannies and food service workers and gardeners, a big service economy. Second, we are aging here in the United States and we've got a lot of productive people in a sandwich generation who will be made more productive with adequate care structures. And we need to think about how to reward that work both in terms of wages and in terms of how we talk about it. How many of you have kids? How many of you leave your kids with the care person? Okay. How many of you think to yourself, gosh, I really hope they're low skill? <laughs> or if you've got elders and they're being cared for, do you think, man, those people got no skills? But we talk about it as low skill work and we reward it as low skill work when it's the skill that empowers the rest of us to do work. That's our mutuality. That's a care economy. If we pick up on this perspective, we'd understand a little bit about inherited knowledge. Let me pick up on, I'm looking at the time, I'm gonna go three minutes over because it's all right. I lost three minutes to 
I come across quite scary, apparently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, all the rage now is about artificial intelligence. It's not artificial, and it's not intelligent. <laughs> it's large language models scraping collective knowledge and appropriating it and privatizing it. It's like Marx's enclosure of the commons. <laughs> it's the birth of a new capitalism. But it's taking everything we collectively own, privatizing it, selling it back to us. Where's your dividend? When we talk about universal basic income, we often forget about the idea of a solidarity dividend, a human knowledge dividend. Another favorite example that one of your own economists has used, this is my iPhone. When you think about it, you probably think of Steve Jobs. I think of the fact that half the patents in here were driven by fundamental research paid for by the U.S. government. Where's my return? I own an electric vehicle, not a Tesla. <laughs> that dude is something else. But I want you to think about how Elon Musk portrays himself as a swashbuckling innovator whose entire model was made possible by public policy. A public commitment to cleaner air, which created a need for electric vehicles, which for the first seven years were not profitable. The only way that Tesla made money was by other companies giving them money to meet their clean air standards. And the market for electric vehicles is only there because of public policy. We built that market. Why is the only reward to it private? Um, one last example, and then I'll come to a stirring and emotional close. <laughs> we use, at least in the United States, sometimes you too, the term safety net. I don't like that term. For a couple of reasons. A net has holes in it. It's meant for an accident. Meaning, you're walking along and you trip, you had a safety net. But if you look at the structural disadvantages in our economy and in yours, these are not accidental. These are structurally formed. I've got a voice condition, which I talked about. About 150,000 people in the United States have it. That's pretty random. The over-incarceration of black people is not random. The undereducation of Latino kids is not random. The abuse of immigrants is not random. So, how do we move to a social wage? I'll talk about the climate, but I'm going to jump over that to get to 
the end. So a couple things I want to lift up. First, what's different about the Solidarity Economics Project is three things I want you to hold on to. The first is that traditionally the default answer for conservatives is if there's a problem, the market. Not of housing, let the market solve it. Racism, the market will solve it. Even the environment, which is a market failure, let's use cap and trade. For the left, the default answer is the government. Housing, government should build housing. Racism, the government should have programs. The government should intervene in the environment. I'm a big believer in government action. But for subordinated populations to trust that the government has their interest is not clear. So the answer should be us. How do we move to social housing in a way that accommodates it? How do we challenge racism within ourselves and our systems? How do we learn to value the environment in each other? Second, what's different about this perspective, as the clash with the publisher made clear, is it's an attempt to both center race and racism and forge commonality and mutuality. We often think that those two things are counterposed. You either focus on race and identity or you focus on class and commonality. How do you do two things at the same time? The last thing that's different, I think, that we will talk about is that there's a term solidarity economy, which often refers to co-ops and land trusts. And what we're trying to do with this is also talk about the role for business. How do we think about <coughs> rewarding the kind of businesses that endowed my chair? that are trying to take a high-road approach. That's both a principle and it's pragmatic. Because we've got large corporations and large businesses, we've got to figure out a way to deal with them. Uh, and then one last point is that I'm going to conclude right now because that will put me exactly right on time and that will make the organizers of this, very, very happy. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Um, I could have given you a few more minutes. <laughs> but um, thank you. And over to you, Tio. Thanks, Armina. And uh, thank you, Professor Manuel Pastor, for that um, invigorating lecture. There's so much you said um, uh, tonight that drove home many of the points that I um, read in the book. Um, I won't be able to touch on everything, but I'd like to offer a few re reflections and hopefully add to the conversation. Um, early in the book, um, 
Manuel and his, and his co-author Chris Benner note that there are multiple perspectives on uh, using the concept of solidarity as a prism to understand and importantly change our economy. Um, they highlight the Intercontinental Network for the Promotion of Social and Solidarity Economy, or RIPES, and that network's explicit aim to build alternatives um, to capitalism. And they contrast that to their own um, inclination to accept that private capital will continue to be an important part of our economy for their foreseeable future. Uh, they also emphasize that this diversity of perspectives is a strength. And I definitely agree. Um, if you think of our economy as um, Chris um, urges to do, um, sorry, as Manuel urges to do, and as, as Chris and Manuel do in the, in the book, if you think of it as not an abstract set of rules handed down by God or found existing um, in nature, but as a function of our relationships, it would make sense that there would be uh, different perspectives on how best to foster solidarity within it, depending on any response to the specific uh, political, social, economic um, context at hand. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all when it comes to, um, at least at a global scale, uh, when it comes to um, solidarity economics, despite efforts by UN bodies, the World Bank, OECD, World Economic Forum, and others, um, who present what's being called the Social and Solidarity Economy, or SSE, um, as a coherent, cohesive concept that can be readily deployed into, um, into policies at all levels of government. Um, I'm not sure they can or should be a one-size-fits-all, um, because even though solidarity economics is scalable and all of the ideas are replicable in different contexts, um, it is also locally embedded and rooted in the everyday in the everyday practices of people, communities, and organizations. I think uh, uh, Manuel made the point uh, clearly this evening. Um, so don't get me wrong, there is a role for policy to play um, in this, and the book makes that clear and provides really great examples of how, um, but it's doubtful that policy can be the starting point, and there should always be a dialectic or a conversation between you know, policy and practice, or you know, something that's being called what, what's happening on the ground, in inverted commas. Um, all of this to say that I approach this topic of solidarity economics from a slightly different perspective, uh, one probably closer to Rappus's, um future-oriented, post-capitalist, and that post-state um, uh, perspective. Um, anticipating differences like this, um, Manuel and his co-author point out that such differences are small compared to what we have in common. Uh, and they also rather wisely, rather shrewdly, um, caution against what they describe as the usual academic habit of quibbling about differences, which is great. <laughs> and I'm going to take that, take that to heart and take that advice. Um, so rather than quibbling, my contribution will be um, hopefully additive and will complement uh, what Manuel has said tonight and also what's, what's in the book. So while reading the book and again while listening to you um, this evening, I was reminded that solidar solidarity economics is an attempt to redescribe what it means to be human and to reenact the redescription um, in the world through organizing and political action um, to reshape our um, economic and social and social relations. This new economic narrative that you've been that you you consider reference to this evening, and also again um, in the book, um, in its different take on on the nature of human existence, the book rejects the persistent and destructive idea that our economy is made up of utility maximizing individuals acting out of rational self-interest. Um, that, that our economy is made up, in other words, of homo economicus, the rational man of Euromodernist economics. Uh, this project of redescribing the human, redescribing what it means to be human, has been a recurring theme in African and black feminist and anti-colonial, post-colonial and decolonial thought. Um, because as um, two, two scholars, Melissa Stein and William Pofu from the Witt Center for Diversity, Centers for Diversity Studies put it, 
The principal trouble with the grand construction of the human of Eurogenity is that it was founded on unhappy circumstances and for tragic purposes. Man, capital M, uh, man, as a performative idea, created inequalities and hierarchies usable for the exclusion and oppression of the other. Um, in the book, and again this, this, this evening, Manuel um, sort of emphasizes this point, this point and sort of drives it home in the examples of the different forms of racial, gender, um, and other oppressions, exclusions, inequalities, and hierarchies in the United States, which unfortunately are sort of evident in so many other places, in so many other, so many other societies. I was struck by you know, a lot of the, the statistics that you put up here. Uh, you could sort of copy and paste that to South Africa, where I'm, where I'm from, and that was sort of like, you know, a lot of those ideas sort of uh, still hold true. Um, so on this, black feminist author Audre Lorde pointed out that um, it is because of this Euromodernist conception of the human, what she called the master and his tools, that we have no differences for relating across our human difference as equals. As a result, those differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. Uh, Manuel and Chris write about this too um, in the book. Um, in the chapter on uh, solidarity, economics, and innovation, they highlight that much of what passes for innovation in the United States creates tools that essentially um, serve to separate and confuse. Um, they mentioned that industrial policy and innovation in the United States is driven by so-called national security, which is pretty much synonymous with war, like the kind we're seeing happening now to protect US interests in the Middle East at the expense of Palestinians and others who are considered to be lower down or excluded in this Euro-modernist um, hierarchy of man. Um, this is unfortunately not a new pattern um, observing this, um, people like um, uh, Fanon, Césaire, and others have called for a new man, which I think sort of speaks to this idea of you know, these new narratives. Steve Biko called for um, giving the world a more human face. Um, Sylvia Winter called for redescribing the human as a precondition for dismantling the colonial matrix of power in order to establish relations that preserve the well-being of us all, fellow living beings in the planet that, that, that sustains us. Um, uh, again, here, here tonight and also in the book, um, uh, Manuel and his co-authors have repeatedly emphasized that their work on solidarity economics is grounded in the thoughts, experiences, and resistance of people in the U.S. who are systematically and structurally excluded from and marginalized in the mainstream economy, as it is they who've had to devise their own ways through solidarity, through cooperation, through collective action to meet their own needs and aspirations neglected or trampled on by, um, by the state and the market. Um, the book, uh, they also give a nod to professors Jessica Gordon Nemhart and Carolyn Hussein, who've been emphasizing the deep intellectual history and African roots of economic cooperation and solidarity economics in black communities in North America and the Caribbean. Um, I think in the reason why I emphasize the genealogy, genealogy is that I think it's important to state explicitly. Um, because I've encountered a puzzling framing coming out of Western Europe, where I live uh, right now, where the SSE and related efforts to rethink and rebuild the fundamentals of our economies and societies um, and to reorient them towards solidarity, towards cooperation, towards sharing, towards toward caring for each other and the planet, um, and to move away from the perpetual, perpetual growth, profit-maximizing logic towards restorative, regenerative, and redistributive logics. These ideas have been positioned as, or are being positioned currently, as being either European ideas or you know, Europe's gift to the world. Mm. Um, some of the recent discussions about, around the, the recent European um, social economy plan and also the European uh, Green Deal have been um, framed in this, what I can only describe as a neo-colonial uh, perspective. 
And so, as I, so Milton Friedman quote kind of reminded me of this, that, you know, this idea of how the politically impossible moves to the politically was it irresistible? Yeah. To the politically irresistible is that, you know, there is also that risk that happens here of, of co-optation of these, of these concepts, these potentially emancipatory liberty, liberty <laughs> concepts. And there is, you know, currently this, this, this debate and contestation happening around this concept of solidarity economics, this concept, these concepts of the SSE. Um, and I think this is different from the, um, from the kind of differences that you and I have in that we see those, those differences um, being able to exist together in the same frame, whereas with some of these ideas, it's almost like this universalizing tendency um, of, you know, uh, describing the world um, as it is and as it should be from, from a European or Europe-centered um, um, perspectives. There are currently huge sums of funding going towards SSC initiatives and SSC research in Europe, which if the past experience is anything to go by, uh, will be used as evidence for policies and laws uh, prescribed to countries in the, in the global south, ignoring the way people, communities, and organizations already already are and have been theorizing and acting um, solidarity economics. Um, the danger isn't only that it's essentially taking credit for somebody's <laughs> ideas, that, that, that's, that's definitely the danger, but it also risks presenting an incomplete and therefore an ineffective solution um, at a time when we at least, when we least can afford it given the multiplicity of crises we're facing. So if you take seriously the idea that solidar solidarity economics is about redescribing and reacting what it means to be human, and that our economy is a function of our relationships, then it will be clear that it doesn't require missionary-type work to go somewhere else out there to sort of enact solidarity. Um, solidarity economics is something that each of us can do uh, from our place in the world by re-examining our relationships, the relationships that sustain us in our families, in our places of work and leisure, in our societies, and asking ourselves, who is the other in this relationship? Um, is a relationship equitable and mutually affirming of each of our being? Um, what can we do together to enhance and build on equitability and mutuality in this relationship? How can we connect and act together with others in this relational nexus to deepen the bonds of mutuality and solidarity? That would be a good start, uh, but alone it's not, it's not enough. Um, in the book, Manuel and Chris recognize, um, they say that, of course, one, person, one person's or one group's mutuality might be another's exclusion. Mm -hmm. And this is where I find the African philosophy of Ubuntu, which I use in my thinking, in my work, um, in my organizing. Um, and Manila um, and Chris also give a nod to the philosophy in the book. This is why I find it helpful. So in addition to offering a descriptive account that human existence, that our existence is a fundamentally relational existence, biologically, socially, epistemolog epistemologically, and in so many other ways, the philosophy also proposes that we are and become good humans, for lack of a better term in English, or you know how we feed the good wolf, the the the, the wolf that cares for others in, in in us, when we recognize the humanness in each other, and on that basis pursue harmonious relations, whatever those look like in our kind of like specific um, specific situation, specific context. As a normative proposition, Ubuntu calls on us to set aside power, hierarchies, and other distortions um, to our relations and seek ways to relate to each other harmoniously um, as full, messy, complicated beings. So figuring out you know, what, that, what that kind of means, both in the here and now, and also in relation to fellow living beings, those who came before and those who came after. That way, uh, it becomes more possible to guard against and reject forms of mutuality that are predicated on exclusion, tit for tat forms of reciprocity and cooperation whose aims are to, are to oppress and uh, dehumanize others. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. 
um, it's no longer harmonious relations be eternal once established. Uh, it will take work and constantly reorienting our thinking and our economic systems at all levels to always consider the needs um, of the self and the other together in the same, um, the same frame or the same economic relation. This is the ceaseless work of, of, uh, being, of being human, according to Ubuntu philosophy. So once again, uh, thank you to Professor Manuel Pastor for sharing your thoughts and to, your co -author, to you and your co-author for writing this um, highly accessible book. It's really, it's really readable. I, do, I also do recommend that you, that you get it. Um, so I will kind of conclude by abusing what, what's left of my time. I see I'm being sort of scribbling there <laughs> out of time. But I'll abuse what's, what's left of my time to sneak in the first question uh, to you uh, in, in, in the Q&A, which, um, which is this. Um, is there a trade-off between connectedness and efficiency? I ask this because in the book you quote the supposed African proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. Uh, it strikes me that so much of the neoliberal economy uh, in its pursuit of efficiency is built on going faster and faster and faster, leaving little room or time for going together, leaving little room for connectedness. So is there a trade-off? Um, and if not, can you say more on why? Um, and if there is, can you share your thoughts on how we navigate and make, and make peace with that? Um, yeah. Thank you. And thank you. <laughs> thank you, Tio. Um, so before I hand over to you, Manuel, to answer that question, I just would like to remind the audience um, that the floor is now open for questions for both online and in-person audiences. If you'd like to type your question online into the Q&A box, we will try to answer as many as possible. If you could um, add your name and affiliation, that would be great. For those in the room, please raise your hand and I will select questions in rounds. But before I take any questions from the floor, I'm going to ask you to take Tia's question. Great. So let me see. Is this working, is working? still? Or is this? Okay. So I'll answer the question. But first, thanks for those very thoughtful comments. And just to lift up uh, two things uh, that uh, Tia pointed to that I developed a little bit further. Uh, the other sort of really wonderful and terrible example about inequality distorting innovation is the one we use at the beginning of the chapter in innovation about South Africa, which South Africa during the era of apartheid became famous for two innovations, a pool cleaner so that the white wealthy could uh, make sure their pools were clean of anybody else who might jump in. And second, a marvelous, uh, thing that could lay out barbed wire very quickly in order to crunch demonstrations, which became popular all over the world. So if that's not distorted innovation, I don't know what is. The second thing that I left up that we really picked up from black feminist authors, aside from the things you mentioned, is the power, uh, the power of collective labor. That often when we talk about caring labor and the need for it to be in our accounting system, to be rewarded. We're thinking about family care, elder care. But uh, several black uh, feminist authors have pointed to the importance of collective care. Mm. 
of creating community of Ubuntu, that it needs to be nurtured by someone and it's not just there automatically, like the market isn't just there and selfishness isn't there just automatically. And that labor of creating community, sustaining community organizations needs to be more valued in our society. <clears throat> um, the question of uh, connectedness and efficiency. Um, I think that what Chris and I would say is that it's not the case that there is no trade-off. Sometimes you move fast because you need to. But the constant sense that there is a trade-off is false. And the way I would get to it is through the traditional equity efficiency trade-off. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't sometimes efficiency trade-offs to be more equitable. Um, making sure that we've got a good miking system for people like me, I don't know, you might have gained something from it tonight by allowing me to participate fully. Sometimes some trade-offs are a little expensive. But in the face of an incarceration rate for black males that's five times what it is for white males in the United States, in the face of 12 million people being undocumented immigrants who can't contribute fully to the economy, in the face of a patriarchal society that systematically under-rewards labor that's defined as being female labor and women at the workforce, it's hard to me to argue that's efficient. Mm -hmm. So I don't deny that there are some times when being connected or being equitable or standing in solidarity might cost us an extra dollar or two or a pound or two. <laughs> but think about how much money we're leaving on the floor. When we don't deliver health care to everyone who needs it, yeah. what that sickness calls us costs us in terms of economic efficiency. So I think more of the question is why do neoliberals insist that there's always a trade-off? Yeah. To insist that there's always a trade-off technically assumes that you're at the production possibilities frontier. You can't possibly get uh, more prosperity uh, by being more fair. Yeah. But I think we're pretty far inside that partly because of neoliberalism, we've driven ourselves mentally to value efficiency defined narrowly above everything else. Mm -hmm. And that we could benefit by valuing connectedness on the strictly economic side, as well as on, I don't know, feeling a little bit better about ourselves as human beings. So I've got one question here, one there. I'll take and three. So I'll take those three. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, back to the event. Um, my name is Bernard Casey. I've worked at a number of universities which have two letters, three letters which define them. I've also worked for a number of IFIs, some of which have two letters, some of which have three letters, and some of which have four letters. I was actually struck by something where you started off, but also something where we kind of ended up, or both of you ended up today, but the term was never mentioned, and that was the concept of social capital, which I actually first learned about a lot when I was working at one of those three-letter IFAs, or was it a two-letter one or a four-letter one in a in a country which has got three letters in it. Um, but social capital and its contribution to the combating of COVID is something which, when I had nothing better to do in the last few years, I actually sat down and tried to write about and tried to analyze. And I was very skeptical. But I was very interested in its contribution or it's a non-contribution in that concept. And I wondered whether you could talk about whether social capital is a useful concept, whether it's a positive concept, and whether it assists you in your analysis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, thank you so much for this talk. It was really interesting, and I'm excited to read the book. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, um, I appreciate the fact that when you were writing the book, it Roe might not have been overturned in the U.S., but the effect of um, abortion bans and reproductive autonomy um, and the connection it has with um, the labor force and the racialized impacts as well, um, just because like particularly in the United States context, um, the, the states that have been most impacted by that are like disproportionately black and Latinx and indigenous um, states um, or populations that have higher populations of that. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about that, especially because you had mentioned um, the care economy as well, um, and a lot of more wealthy countries around the world, the US included, being worried about not having a population to take care of the aging population. Um, and then that in combination with like forced birth and the racialized impacts of that, I'd be really interested in hearing your perspective on it um, since it's so recent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think there was the person, yes, right there. <laughs> Hi, thank you for your interesting uh, speech. And yeah, so it seems that your first part of the speech focused more on the racism in the United States, uh, the race issue, and which can be connected to a lot of racism and uh, Asian hate events in the United States. But it seems that on the second part, especially when you uh, talk about solidarity uh, economies, you focus more on the labor force. So I'm not sure if you can talk more specifically like how to address those uh, hate racism through the lens of the solidarity economies and especially considering the, you know, the hospitality social environments. Yeah. Great, and I'd love, uh, I was about to say that too, I'd love Tia to jump in as well. Um, so a couple things, I do find the concept of social capital both useful and limiting. Uh, I find it useful because it makes us think about social networks effects, which I think is partly the reproduction of racial inequality in the United States has to do with network um, effects. And uh, so I think that that's important. I also think 
that it is a way of thinking about how societies wind up developing uh, care for one another in the context of COVID, for example. I think there's two limits. Um, the first is that talking about it as capital uh, make people think about it not in a humanistic fashion, not in a fundamental way, but an instrumental way, like as a means to an end rather than caring for people as an end unto itself, as a way of making us more fully human. Uh, so I find it limiting in that kind of a way. The second thing, uh, and this is somebody I know well too, but uh, Bob Putnam, who wrote the book Bowling Alone, and I pointed out to Bob once that uh, Americans might be bowling alone, but new Americans are playing soccer together, or what you call football. Um, so one of the things I think is that the social capital debate needs to deal with something that Tia picked up on in her writing, which is the way that mutuality needs to be about bridging and not about exclusion. Like it's easy to care about people who are just like you. The task is to de-other the other. And that, I think, is what real solidarity is about. And I worry about social capital as a concept and its limits in that regard. Um, on, I'll deal with the reproductive stuff at the end. I want to say a word about uh, race. The way that the two things fit together is that you can't is looping back to the beginning, which is that the politics of division is driven by an economics of scarcity, real or perceived. When white working class workers feel that they've lost because of deindustrialization, they will blame it on other groups. Here's an interesting statistic for you with an anecdote afterwards for all the people who smiled about anecdotes. Um, during the Great Recession in the United States, white male workers without a college degree fared better, they suffered less in places that had a lot of immigrant workers. Why? Because when the economy turns sour, immigrant workers move, reducing any kind of competition. But you didn't see white male workers stepping up to defend immigrants as their buffer. So, and another way to think about this, for those who love anecdotes, is that you don't see a lot of Mexican immigrants clamoring to become coal miners in West Virginia. They know that industry's dying. But do workers there find themselves attracted by the likes of Donald Trump and immigrant bashing? Yes. So you can either ignore racism or you could try to inoculate people against it. And that's why this talk doesn't just focus on commonality, 
it starts with talking about racism and understanding racism as both dispossessing people of color disproportionately, but also standing in the way of solidarity. On the reproductive autonomy, I think to some extent we're back at part of the beginning of the talk in which I said that neoliberal theorists think of themselves as innocent of the racism that got unleashed because it's not in their model. It just happens to be coincident with how it got picked up and politically deployed. And I think that there's been this unhealthy alliance that's emerged. And if you think about it, the patriarchal instinct to dominate the bodies of women is connected to the patriarchal instinct to dominate the planet. It's connected to the instinct to dominate people who don't look like you. And I think it's all been unleashed under this umbrella of market economics, even though the theorists themselves might be perfectly supportive of the individual rights of women and others to control their reproductive decisions. So to me, it's no surprise that what we see lining up on one side of the political spectrum are the same people who want to ignore racism and push it out of our educational structures to educate people about, who want to ignore workers' rights, who want to mangle other people's pronouns, who want to strip away reproductive autonomy. It's certainly become a big issue in the United States now that the reality of it has become so apparent. Tio, I wonder if you have anything you want to say. Yeah, I just want to add, um, I guess, to the, to the last question on, you know, um, racism, uh, I guess even, you know, uh, gender discrimination and uh, labor force and solidarity economics as a response to this. One of the examples that sort of really uh, drove the point home for me in the book that you touched on a bit tonight is the is the wage differentials or the or the, or the in income um, differentials between um, the highly skilled people who look after the children of uh, people who work in, Sil in Silicon Valley and the salaries of, of the Silicon Valley workers, in that um, the, the, there's a distortion there that you know, it's, it's this the, the kind of care work that they do is highly gendered, um, highly highly racialized, and considered you know low skill, but in reality it takes it takes quite a, quite a, quite a bit of skill. And that, that work enables those, those um, people who work in Silicon Valley to go do whatever it is that they do, that, that they do to, to earn these kind of like big salaries. But in that relation, it's inequitable in that the, the value created through that relation, through that relationship, accrues disproportionately to the Silicon Valley workers who typically happen to be uh, white men. Um, there's a, there are also the, the reasons for this. Um, and so as a, as a response, solidarity economics calls for uh, uh, a shifting of that, uh, a redistribution essentially of, of that of the um, of the economic of the economic outcome of of that of the, uh, a redistribution of the value created through that relation in order to sort of you know, reflect the reality that everybody's sort of contributing to creating this value, and it's not only just these um, high-earning uh, Silicon Valley workers who are doing 
who are doing that work. So that for me, I think really drove home the point of you know, the ways that um, solidarity can work as a framework to you know, uh, respond to these, to these, kind, of, these kind of issues that, uh, that of racism, of uh, sexism in the, in the, in the labor force. Yes, and to get to the, back to the point that one of our questioners was lifting up, similarly, the threat to reproductive rights extends beyond women themselves or people who are going to bear children uh, to their partners, to their communities. Uh, and it's something where people really do need to stand in solidarity. But just to hammer on point that Tia just made, which I like to use with California audiences, in California, the county in California that has the largest share of its population that is undocumented is Santa Clara County, the heart of the Silicon Valley. Because someone's got to take care of all those family responsibilities that those software programmers are not. And that labor is coupled. And so often when people think about resolving problems of inequality, they think, how do we skill labor up to make a higher wage? Instead of thinking about how do we relabel labor that already is skilled? and reward it. So we are actually almost out of time, So, but I had two more questions, so I'm going to take... Academics can filibuster, right? So. Oh my gosh. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Ahmed, very quick. <laughs> and then Naila, and then... Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and I'm going to ask the audience for just five extra minutes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for this uh, amazing session. My question is very simple. Uh, in the current climate of, well, basically we live in this post-neoliberal ecosystem where also social movements can be intrinsically captured by neoliberal ideologies. Uh, how can we provide a narrative for change? Is it uh, Evidence-based uh, research is enough. Is it enough for now for a gradual transition into a welfare state? That's my question. Or is it other elements? Thank you. Right, right, right. Okay, right here. Oh, okay. Yes. And then there. Mm -hmm. Oh, hi. Right there. Yes. Uh, I'm going to try and make it very brief. I was going to give you a long spiel about how much I enjoy the talk, and I found myself nodding along with almost everyone. Oh, no, take your time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nodding along with everything you said, I particularly like the point about talking about our economy rather than the economy. I think that's a really important shift. But I'll get to the question. So not, 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 and then I suddenly thought, ah, oh, I'm not sure I agree with this. And it's a slightly trivial point, part of your lecture, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, and it was about tipping. You gave us Australians don't tip, British tip a bit more, and the Americans tip a lot. And I think you interpreted it as generosity on the part of Americans because they were acknowledging the kind of services they got. I want to give you an alternative interpretation. I think in Europe and in Australia, we long time had something called a service charge, which was not necessarily discretionary. I think tipping and the idea of discretionary recognition of services leads to some real injustices. In particular, people who've studied the catering industry find that sexual harassment of women is most high, highest in where you rely on tipping. In South Asia, we have a term for it called bakshish, and it's a, it's, it has an element of charity and discretion. So if we go back to the living wage, if people had the living wage, we wouldn't have to tip. 
I'd rather give a service charge and make that compulsory mm -hmm. than leave it to how nice the service provider is. Thank you, Naina. Okay, um, hello, my name is Jacinta and um, I really enjoyed your talk and I thought it really does touch on current um, issues and current uh, concerns that people have. But I wanted to just simply raise the point about BRICS. I don't know uh, if anybody knows about the BRICS nations and whether uh, solidarity that you talk about can be related to um, what they stand for uh, in terms of the way that they have formed a, a kind of collaboration and kind of an alliance and um, as to whether you see what they do as you know a form of solidarity and a form of way um, an alternative way to the, the Western system or economic system as it stands today. That's it, thank you. Thank you, Jacinta. Can you pass it behind me? Um, thank you very much. I think I also liked um, uh, your presentation. It brought to light so many things that got me thinking about the issue of cultures of servitude uh, and how cultures of servitude fit into the whole solidarity economics. Um, I do understand when you talk about the collective uh, because that works when you talk about social enterprises as well as uh, cooperatives. And we have a model of cooperatives that seems to work um, in Kenya. But when you talk about cultures of servitude because then applies to an individual, um, that how, how then can we turn that into some kind of a transformative process that recognizes the value of somebody who does not have like academic qualifications. Thank you so much, Mavis. So, Manuel, you've got five minutes, literally, to tackle all of those questions. I don't know where you'd like to start from. Tipping, bricks. Yes, I can, uh, I can do it. Um, so first, about uh, tipping, the point I was trying to make is that economics doesn't understand tipping very well, uh, and that thinks that it's an individual reward to a particular service. And it's in that relationship that you can get the kind of abuse that you're talking about, sexual, uh, gender, uh, racial, as well. Because the uh, tipping and part of the United States came out of the work that former slaves did, and it was to be rewarded for a culture of servitude rather than community service. So I was really trying to talk about how economists don't understand this. Because if you do understand it and you realize that it's rooted in norms, that it's rooted in mutuality, that it's rooted in reciprocity, you can solve that problem through the kind of things you're talking about. A service charge so that the worker feels empowered to tell you to bug off if you're an abuser or if you expect extraordinary service when you yourself are being rude. So that's the point I was trying to make is that Economists understand it individually rather than understanding it through mutuality and collectively. Um, I do think that there's a risk of social movements uh, both being co-opted. Gio talked about that. Mm -hmm. But also co-opting themselves. Uh, when we start to think that a social movement is your Twitter following? <laughs> rather than your connection with other people. When we think that it's about 
saying the most politically correct thing mm -hmm. rather than talking to a working class person mm -hmm. about their life mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, a, by the way, did you notice I never said socialist? Mm -hmm. um, because we were working with community groups who were trying to say, how do we talk to working people? In our economy, inclusion matters and we need to come together. Those all make sense and you can have a conversation. So I worry about another kind of consumerism too, which is of being the most leftist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of creating a powerful movement for change. Um, I dealt a little bit with the culture of servitude and I think it's important to distinguish that between that and a culture of service. Mm. It's a service to others, service to our community. The last thing I want to come to, see I really did it in that amount of time, <laughs> is about the BRICS. And I want to make a more general point. And this will give me to end on something that our South African friend will appreciate, which is that we often think about the solidarity of coming together. And I stress that. But we should also think about the solidarity of the picket line, mm. the solidarity of the boycott, mm. solidarity of the protest march. Mm. And this got driven home to me, most of all, in my last trip to South Africa in an event sponsored by Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a conversation and perhaps an over celebration that goes on in South Africa that you know very well about Nelson Mandela as a hero and part of the, and he is. So please don't say, think I'm saying not. But you know that one story that gets repeated over and over again about Mandela is that he learned Afrikaans while in prison to communicate with his jailers. It helped him understand the power of rugby, helped him to unify the country when he became president. And that's true. But it's also true that Nelson Mandela refused to be released from prison when the apartheid government insisted that he renounce armed violence. Understanding that you needed to be a weaver, but you also needed to be a warrior. So solidarity economics is about mutuality, but it's about movements. It's about coming together and understanding one another, but it's about drawing the line around injustice and coming together for resistance when needed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Manuel and Tio, for your great contributions today. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to chair today's event, and I want to thank everyone in the audience, online and in the room, for being here with us today, and also to the BSL interpreters, thank you for your work, and to Saga for your organizational work. So please join us for the reception. Thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.